Welcome to the podcast of ideas from the Institute of Ideas. In this edition, I talked to Professor Bill Derody about the attacks in Copenhagen last weekend and their implication for free speech and the war on terror. Claire Fox, the director of the Institute, talks about how the emergence of the public is reflected in the changing face of theatre through the ages. And Brige Hehir argues that the crusade against female genital mutilation may be doing more harm than good. Last Saturday, a gunman in Copenhagen opened fire on a free speech debate in the city being hosted by a well-known cartoonist, Lars Vilks, killing one man, film director Finn Norgard. A couple of hours later, another attack took place, this time on Copenhagen's central synagogue, where another man was killed. Danish police later killed a 22-year-old man after he opened fire when they confronted him. There are obvious parallels between the attacks in Copenhagen and those in Paris in January, raising questions about free speech, the radicalisation of young Muslims and the possible ramping up of anti-terror laws. To discuss this, I'm joined via Skype by Professor Bill Gerodi, Chair of International Relations in the Department of Politics, Languages and International Studies at the University of Bath and a frequent contributor to debates at the Battle of Ideas. So Bill, what were your first thoughts when you heard about the Copenhagen attacks? Well, the first thing, as usual, is that these events are entirely tragic. But it also alerted me much more to how this could now happen pretty much anywhere at any time. I know the authorities have been making statements to that effect for some time. But here we had members of the general public wanting to have a discussion about freedom of expression and and its trajectory in contemporary society. So I think that should be of concern to, to anybody who, who wants to have open, free and, uh, and democratic debate. We also have to keep a sense of proportion and perspective in relation to these events. They are tragic. Something needs to be done to, to address the, the, the root causes of these tragedies. But we also uh, should note that we should continue to go about our daily lives unaffected and with a clear sense of purpose as to what we're about and the need to continue to promote freedom of expression. Do you think these attacks are part of a, a new trend? Well, it's a new trend to some extent in as much as it has become violent, lone gunmen going into, uh, in the case of Charlie Hebdo, uh, offices of the media, uh, and here just a, a cafe. But obviously we can uh, take this back to the Danish cartoons debate and controversy of uh, some years ago. And even further back, I think really the starting point in my mind is to look at the issuing of the fatwa by Ayatollah Khomeini over 25 years ago now in relation to the publication of the Satanic Verses and remind ourselves that Penguin, the publisher's, despite all the threats that they were confronted with at that time, continued to defend freedom of expression, continued to publish the book, despite one person losing their lives tragically in, in Japan, and then bring that forward to today, and where we should realize that now publishers are much more sensitive. Uh, uh, we've seen many instances where publishers have 
withdrawn a book prior to publication for fear of offending particular communities. And that self-censoriousness now operates right across society so that we see art exhibitions being pulled from by some of our leading art institutions. We see debates in universities being pulled. And so we have to recognize that it is we as a society who've effectively internalized the Ayatollah's fatwa. We act as the censors. This has nothing to do with any foreign ideology. It is contemporary culture itself that has become sensitive to the fear of causing offence and willing to regulate and self-censor. In terms of the attacks themselves, I mean, you brought it back to the satanic verses, but do you think that this is specific to Islam or is this part of a wider trend of slightly of nihilistic attacks, kind of lashing out by sort of lone individuals or relatively lone individuals? I, I think there are broader trends and, and they're not just about nihilism and lashing out. I always refer the media to the fact that we now teach our children uh, as early as kindergarten that their emotions are particularly important, that their feelings should never be hurt by anybody. And I think, you know, we're beginning to see the consequences of a generation who've been brought up with this presumption that their beliefs and feelings should never be challenged. Now, obviously, most of us would never react in such a way, but at the margins... Uh, I think the events of Charlie Hebdo and now Copenhagen show you that some are prepared to take violent action in consequence of their feelings and beliefs being challenged. Uh, and I always make the point that extremism is really only the extreme expression of mainstream ideas. And if we want to challenge it, it's not by preempting who the extremists are going to be, but rather going right back to the root of what's the mainstream belief that causes this problem. And in, in this instance, I would suggest that it's that uh, reluctance to say to young people that, look, if something is hurtful or offensive, you know, it doesn't uh, damage you in the way that uh, some people hold to be true. It's very important for you to be able to stand up to that and rationally and reasonably answer back or, or, or respond in, in, in a mediated way. So, I think there's certainly that is an important part of the equation. When it comes to Islam, I, you know, I, I think we also have to keep in mind that many uh, of the perpetrators of these events and, and previous events over the last decade, you know, claim some affiliation to Islam. But in many instances, uh, as I've pointed out in my writing, that is their motif rather than their motive. In other words, it's the kind of badge that they attribute to themselves because they know it has... Uh, additional cachet and instills a degree of fear in contemporary Western society. But when you look at these individuals and their backgrounds, really, uh, a lot of them know very little about Islam. Uh, and certainly wouldn't be able to point to Damascus if you put a map of the Middle East under their noses. Of course, the question then comes back all the time, but why are so many of these individuals from places like Pakistan or the Middle East? And you know, I think there are elements there where we have to recognize that the West has continuously interfered in some of these regions over protracted periods going way back to the 1940s and 1950s in order to control those regions to their satisfaction. And no doubt there is a degree of resentment and the reconceptualization of religion in many of those areas 
uh, as a political vehicle precisely because the West went out of its way to, to smash all political opposition to, to, to the way things were in, in those areas. I do think there is an extent to which Islam has now become the religion of choice for the readily offended uh, and people who think that they're on the side of the underdog. And that is something that is certainly worthy of, of further investigation. And in that regard, I, I have spent con considerable time over the last few years looking at YouTube videos of why young women in particular explain why they have chosen to wear the veil when in many instances their mothers never did. And I'm always fascinated of the extent to which when you disentangle what they say, it's mostly a rejection of Western culture rather than uh, a sign of affiliation to anything else. And in many instances, they omit reference to religious observance and piety completely uh, in their uh, earnestness to say, you know, I'm wearing this because, you know, I'm not part of you. And I, I do think, you know, it's very important for the authorities to understand the extent to which uh, it's a rejection of them rather than necessarily a coherent affiliation to anything else. That leads me into the next obvious question, which is about the reaction of the authorities, because you can well imagine that this will heighten calls for further anti-terrorism laws. So, so would you see that as missing the point in many ways in terms of preventing these attacks in the future? Well, you know, it's always the case that the authorities tend to respond to the phenomena rather than trying to get to the roots of the phenomena. And so, you know, the easy knee-jerk solution is to say we need more security. But, you know, when the numbers of individuals involved in such incidents begins to ramp up, I think it's time for people to take a step back and recognize that what we're looking at here is not simply a security problem, but rather a social problem. And, you know, there's a need to address that social problem. Looking back to the points I made earlier about, you know, right from kindergarten and focusing on people's emotions. I think, you know, the rise, apparent rise of such incidents in a, in a very short period of time shows you the consequence of authorities lacking a robust response not in terms of security, but in terms of saying, look, we're a free, open and democratic society. We will hold no truck with those who try to oppose that. It's very easy for world leaders to join hands and go on a demonstration, as they did in Paris after the incidents at Charlie Hebdo. But we know time and time again that the authorities actually clamp down on freedom of expression. So the government in this country are busy introducing the seventh counter-terrorism bill since 9-11, which is putting a requirement on universities, schools and local authorities to spot and stop those who are at risk of becoming radicalized in their midst. And quite frankly, I don't think it's at all clear what is meant by radicalized. It's a, it's a minefield for legislation. You know, at what point does believing in something become believing in it a bit too much? And most importantly, I think the government doesn't know what it wants people to be de-radicalized to. You know, if you don't want some, somebody to be something, you do have to offer them something else to be. And that is the real crisis of contemporary Western society, that it has no 
clear agenda of its own, what it means to be part of uh, British society, for example, in the 21st century, what is the vision for Britain, to provide young people with a sense of purpose, meaning, structure, so that they're not left to look for this in other bizarre avenues. So absolutely fascinating uh, broadening out of the discussion there. Thank you very much, Bill Geroni. Thank you. In July, the Institute will hold its fifth academy, a residential weekend which aims to take a step back from the day-to-day skirmishes of cultural and political life and provide a space to discuss great ideas in historical context. The modest aim is to provide a taste of universities it should be. In addition to a core set of lectures and discussions on political philosophy, there are separate strands on classics, literature and history. I'm joined now by Claire Fox, the Director of the Institute of Ideas, who is also producing the lecture series on literature at the Academy. Hello, Claire. Hi. Um, The overarching theme of the weekend is the emergence of the public. What was the thinking behind choosing that theme? It's just very interesting that in contemporary politics and discussion, you just assume that there is such a thing as a public. We talk about public opinion all the time. We have a sense of the public when it comes to everything from mob rule to democracy. Actually, it hasn't always existed as a concept. And more importantly, in some ways... The public only makes sense if you have a sense of the private. And then you suddenly think, well, historically, how did it emerge that you even had a private sphere as distinct from a public sphere? It wasn't always like that. So it's obviously a fascinating thing to understand historically. From the point of view of today's politics, I think that what's happening in the debates around the public, and in fact a certain degree of contempt for what the public thinks, and the trampling over the private sphere means that intellectually getting to grips and understanding where it all emerged from is particularly important. So that's uh, the sort of overarching theme, but you're doing that through the medium of looking at literature, and this year's Literature Strand is made up entirely of plays. So why did you make that decision? So every year it's almost impossible to curate which works of literature you will use because you don't want to be overly instrumental about the works that you choose to illustrate the point and kind of not treat them as literature. But as soon as we started thinking about the theme of the public, I thought of the theatre in the sense that one of the great historic changes was the emergence of the public theatre in the Renaissance period. And there was actually a shift from the private courts and aristocracy who'd have plays written for them and shown to them to the emergence of the groundlings who would be uh, badly behaved and baying and so on and so forth. And we associate that, of course, with Shakespeare. And so I started to think, well, actually, we haven't studied any or looked at any theatre and plays over the uh, last few years of the Academy, so that's what we decided to do. The opening lectures will illustrate that, both through works of literature, but also give us a bit more of a historical context. So we've got Richard Swan, who's a medieval scholar, and he's going to talk about the morality plays. And that was a kind of early beginning to see a place where theatre talks to an emerging public. Um, And then we've got, wonderfully, Patrick Spottiswood from The Globe, who's going to talk very much about Shakespeare's talking to the public and a self-conscious awareness in that Renaissance period in Shakespeare's time that there is a new audience now the beginning of an emergence of the mass audience and that you actually write your plays as a playwright in that period knowing that they will be watching it, not just Queen Elizabeth and the courtiers.
and in terms of what other plays that you'll be looking at over the course of the the sessions so we've got in the second uh, lecture we're actually moving across to france and there's a very different theatrical tradition there but we wanted to look at the way that theatre in a way reflected and picked up on the emergence of the real public as in those people who created the French Revolution ultimately and so you have this uh, the beginnings of something very interesting so this the second lecture is actually on um, comedy and satire in pre-revolutionary France with a particular look at Beaumarchais and we've just actually uh, confirmed Dr John Lee from Cambridge University who's a Beaumarchais expert I'm so excited to have him as a speaker and you know the marriage of Figaro at that play there was a riot because the play before Mozart's uh, more famous maybe opera that play actually showed peasants servants making fun of and winning in a kind of satirical contest with the aristocracy and the ruling class and you can see that that caused a riot it certainly caused lots of discussion and debate and we end up effectively with the people who either booed or laughed at that play in the audience uh, facing the guillotine very shortly afterwards. Molière slightly earlier, but also, you know, in in, in plays like uh, The Misanthrope, starts to play around with making people laugh at and consider society and some of the hypocrisy and the difference between what you say in public and private, which is a very important theme of Molière and Beaumarchais, that there's a distinction. Should you have a, a, a sort of very polite, uh, ritualised public life um, when you actually, uh, behind the scenes, think something different? So you can see the images of public and private in that context as well. Then the third lecture, we're going to look uh, slightly differently than at um, Ibsen and George Bernard Shaw, much more straightforward politically. I mean, uh, George Bernard uh, Shaw saw himself very much as an Ibsenite, very much using the theatre in those instances to, it would be wrong to say preach a social message, that would be wrong, but it, it's almost a disillusion with mass society that's reflected in those things. And in fact, with Ibsen, it's very much the emergence of the strong individual. I mean, it's sometimes said that that goes into kind of Nietzsche territory, but mm. it's not quite as simple as that. But what Ibsen's basically talking about is how do you be an individual in a mass society? How do you give a lead? How do you go against social norms? And George Bernard Shaw obviously uh, looks at, uh, in his plays in very witty ways, people who try and fight against the grain, go against uh, the kind of, you know, uh, the stultifying uh, kind of Victorian rules and norms and so on. So that, that will be interesting. I'm giving that lecture. We'll all be delighted to know. And then we finish off uh, wonderfully with Martin Robinson, who is going to talk about Brecht. I mean, he's a Brechtian. Brecht is both a Marxist revolutionary playwright. He, however, is also associated with developing whole new theatrical techniques that make a public audience in a theatre consider the fact that they're at a theatre. They realise that it's artificial. So he uh, Brecht goes against the kind of realism of Ibsen, which is almost where you think you're watching society on the stage, to distancing the theatre from the stage and reflecting back how you as an individual member of the audience relate to the ideas that are on the stage. And the great thing about um, doing the theatre as well is, uh, and I don't want to sound Philistine, of course, but, you know, you can read the play. A lot of people don't read plays um, unless you've studied literature, but actually they are very accessible. You can read them very quickly 
I read plays at home by reading out loud and putting on different funny voices, <laughs> which is obviously <laughs> what you can do to uh, uh, boys and girls out there. But I mean, actually, you can get into the, the spirit of it, but they're very readable and they're great works of literature. So also you, can, you, you get the nuances through reading them, but you can also, without cheating, go out and buy the DVD of the play. Um, and watch it and read it while watching it because obviously they were written for public performance and so consequently um, whereas sometimes in the literature strand if somebody says I've watched the film and not managed to read the book you'd think tut tut in this instance if you did that it wouldn't be the worst thing that ever happened to you one final question then if you were doing this strand in 30 years time do you think the theatre today is alive and well enough in relation to presenting the public that it would make any sense or is it all kind of like old hat now we're all in cinemas or we're watching you know uh, box sets of tv shows uh, would the theater still be a place where you could have that kind of discussion well it's interesting because obviously you know box sets of tv shows and the development of film and tv drama is theater as well and so some of the great things that you're watching on your box sets are or great plays, effectively. But live theatre has actually never been more uh, popular in many ways, particularly in Western Europe. And people make the point that people are going to the theatre because they want the real interaction. And it is true that something very magical happens in the theatre that doesn't happen anywhere else. Um, it can also be, uh, uh, you know, dull and not, you know, plays aren't well acted. Or uh, One of the things that I would say that's happened in contemporary theatre is that there's an attempt to by many people who, who create theatre, I'm afraid to say, of patronising the audience by assuming that we won't get the more complex and difficult ideas in, in a lot of the great works of theatre over the years. And so, you know, I, I it sometimes drives me mad when plays that you go to see are kind of over-obviously spell out the themes in case you don't work them out. You know, and a lot of, you know, modernising of, you know, Shakespearean drama can do that. The other thing that's happened, which is a negative trend, by the way, is is that the theatre is where everybody's now into political theatre. But it's too self-conscious. And so, you know, the kind of great subtlety of Brecht or, e or even, you know, George Bernard Shaw and Ibsen, who were very political when they wrote, but they, but they, they didn't do agitprop in quite a straightforward way. Or, and, you know, the kind of... There's, a knowing, there's an unhelpful knowing... Uh, wink to the audience in much contemporary theatre, which is, we know that we're all on the right right side, aren't we? Not the same kind of attempts at challenging, uh, being discursive, allowing moral ambiguity to dominate. Great literature doesn't work without moral ambiguity. There has to be a degree of not knowing what the who the goodies and the baddies are for literature to work, and sometimes that's lost in today's conformist political culture of everyone being right on lefties who think they know what's going on in the world and that's too often what you see on the stage that's a negative aspect of the public discussion that we're having well claire you've sold it to me i might go against all my religious beliefs and actually read some literature if claire has sold it to you and you want to find out more about it go to instituteofideas.com forward slash the academy or one word and you'll find out all about the sessions there all the different strands there are early bird tickets still available you can get a discount if you can buy your ticket by the 4th of march and the event itself happens on the 18th to the 21st of july just north of london in bedfordshire thank you very much claire fox thank you get watching and reading
On 4th of February, a doctor accused of performing female genital mutilation, or FGM, on one of his patients was cleared by a jury at Southwark Crown Court in what was the first such case in the UK. To discuss the case and the wider issue of FGM in the UK today, I'm joined by Breeze Hehir, a retired NHS health visitor and senior manager. Breeze produced and took part in a session at last year's Battle of Ideas on the FGM controversy and produced an essay for the conference examining the state of the debate today. So Breeze, what was the doctor accused of doing and what had he actually done? Well, I sat through this court case in Southwark for two weeks. Um, The doctor was a registrar at the Whittington Hospital in London and he had been called to attend to a woman in labour whose baby was in distress. He assessed her and discovered that she needed an instrumental delivery, i.e. a forceps or a vacuum extraction. And in the course of examining her, he discovered that she had scar tissue covering her urethra. And that was important because before doing a delivery like that, he had to catheterize her in order to empty her bladder. So he cut through the scar tissue before uh, delivering the baby. Afterwards, he naturally resutured what he had cut. And it's this cut and the suture that he used that was the subject of the trial. And did she have this scar tissue because she at some point in the past had some form of FGM? She'd been infibulated as a six-year-old in Somalia many years ago. What's infibulation? Oh, she'd had what's now called genital mutilation. Right. She'd had her labia stitched together. And um, that's very common in Somalia. But the woman had, after she'd gotten married... She had gone to an NHS doctor and she'd been de-infibulated. When she attended the Whittington Hospital for her antenatal checks, she told the midwives that she'd had this opening up and they forgot to pursue this. And it was only when she turned up in labour that they discovered that the scar tissue existed. So this, as I understand it, became something of an emergency then... The emergency was that the baby was in distress and needed to be delivered quickly, which is why the doctor did an instrumental delivery and the catheterization. Cutting through that scar tissue and re-suturing it was what was considered to be re-infibulation. Given those facts, it seems a strikingly weak case, as if there was a kind of an attempt by the authorities in some way to try and find the case. I mean, what do you think about the reasons why this came to court? It was a strikingly weak case, and I think everybody in the court, including the prosecution, recognised that. But the case had been brought to trial at the behest of the Crown Prosecution Service, who have been looking for somebody to prosecute for some time. They have found it very difficult to find a child who has been mutilated, in inverted commas, So they had been asking for referrals and through the police they were informed that this case had happened at the Whittington Hospital. Alison Saunders had appeared before the parliamentary inquiry into FGM early last year and they had been exploring why there never had been a prosecution considering that there had been laws against it for 30 years. And she, I think, was 
needed to tell them something positive and told them that she was hopeful of a prosecution. What's the driver here? Why, why is there such interest in FGM and why, why is this concern to, to find people to prosecute? Well, the interesting thing is that a problem seems to exist in people's heads as opposed to in reality because we're told that there are thousands of children at risk because they're born to women who might have come from an area of the world where FGM is practised. And the assumption is that if those women deliver daughters, that they will automatically do it to the daughters. There's a number of people who are very active to the extent that there's a crusade, I would say, going on in trying to find people who uh, might have practised this or to find children who've had it done to them. And it's you know called child abuse, so everybody involved, whether it's public sector workers in health education, the NSPCC, the police, the border agencies, they're all on the lookout for a case that they can use as an example to say this is a problem, it's happening in Britain. Okay, they so, can't find evidence to that. Okay, so, so the, there's a lack of evidence for its existence or that, that certainly that a lack of evidence that there's a major problem mm. going on. But you also earlier said, in quotes, mutilation. So can you explain a little bit about why you, you said that? I mean, because it is quite an emotive term, female genital mutilation. Yes, mutilation is a Western term that's applied to a traditional practice that happens in a number of African countries predominantly, but in the Middle East as well, and some of Southeast Asia, where girls have their genitals cut to varying degrees. So if there are very few cases and it's maybe not as big a a problem in terms of the facts of FGM itself, the actual practice of FGM, what's the problem with the anti-FGM campaign? After all, it is still a criminal offence and surely it's right that the authorities should be seeking out and identifying cases where this is done. Yes, it is a criminal offence and there are laws against it. There has been a law in Britain for 30 years that has never been used. But what's considered abuse by some is not considered abuse by others. And the people who practice a female genital cutting or circumcision do it as an act of love to protect the interests of their daughters as they see it. So I think following women are... trying to identify families in order to prosecute them for child abuse is a terribly insensitive thing to do and is going to make problem worse than than it probably already is for them because if you feel that your traditions and practice are under scrutiny and you've been told that you're a barbaric mutilator, what will you do? You're backed into a corner. You'll stop engaging with the services because you're going to be afraid that you're going to be criminalised next. This is uh, is both criminalising people that don't feel that they should be criminalised mm. and it could, to some degree, actually put the welfare of these families and the, the children in particular at risk because they feel that they can't then go to these services because they feel that they might have the finger pointed at them. Mm-hmm. That's the case, and I'm, I'm sure that not only will women who've been infibulated as children need antenatal care and need deinfibulating will be a bit uh, reserved about accessing NHS services now. And obviously the other side of this is that clinicians who deal with women 
who've had FGM are really going to worry about their own practice and worry that what they do as clinicians will be judged as FGM when they're doing what they think is right in the interest of their patients, as Dr. Damasena said continually that he did. Well, how should we approach the, the problem of FGM then? Is there an alternative approach that would be better in your view? I think Britain has been very good for a very long time in providing sensitive healthcare services to women. They have specialist clinics, 14 clinics around the country, where specialist midwives and surgeons see women and de-infibulate them. That's a service that I hope will continue, but there's a possibility that people might try and avoid them, worrying that if they attend the services that they might be referred to the police. The police are very, very keen to get new referrals because they they want to investigate the, uh, the prevalence of FGM. I think we need to get the, the the whole FGM thing in perspective. I do not believe that there are children being mutilated in this country or even taken abroad, as we're led to believe. But the whole anti-FGM campaign is based on the notion that there's an epidemic of it happening, which means that everybody has to be on the alert, supposedly, to identify children at risk. Schools are about to be told that they have to be looking out for girls who might be taken abroad during the supposed cutting season. NHS trusts have to collect data on every person who has had FGM, and this has to be reported. And that data gathering is going to be extended. The police and the border agencies are on the lookout. And we saw this week that a woman who was taking a flight from London via Amsterdam to Ghana was picked up by the police on the International Day of Zero Tolerance to FGM. And her child was put into care while they investigated the woman's intent, presumably, Fortunately, this child has been reunited with the woman, but we don't know yet what has happened in regard to the case. I believe she's on bail. But that kind of deliberate searching for criminals, I think, does nobody any good apart from people who want to tick boxes and say that they are doing what they think is right in the interest of children, which it patently isn't, in my view. Okay. Well, well, thank you very much for that, Brige. Um If you would like to read her essay... Um, it's available on the Battle of Ideas website. Just look for the session that Breeze produced, which is called The FGM Controversy, and you'll find a link to it there. Thank you very much, Breeze. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. To hear more of our podcasts and find out how you can subscribe to them, visit www.instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.